0: Welcome to another COVID 19 Law and Policy Briefing, produced by Public Health for Law Watch, a George Consortium initiative based at Northeastern University School of Law. Thank you to our co sponsors the Center for Public Health Law Research at Temple University, the Network for Public Health Law, Change Lab Solutions, and the APHA Law Section. We are here to provide expert legal analysis during the COVID-19 pandemic and hopefully to answer some of your questions. For more information on the COVID legal response, please check out our report, Assessing Legal Responses to COVID-19 at www.covid19policyplaybook.org. In the report, 50 national experts assess the U.S. policy response and provide specific recommendations on how local governments can better respond to COVID-19 as well as future pandemics. We're currently working on a new version of the report. Stay tuned. It's coming out soon. I'm Wendy Parmet. Professor of Law and Director for the Center for Health Policy and Law at Northeastern University. And I'm really pleased to be joined today by my colleague on the Legal Assessment Projects Editorial Board, Professor Scott Burris, Director for the Center for Health for Center for Public Health Law Research at Temple University, and also Dara Lieberman, Director of Government Relations at the Trust for America's Health. Please use the hashtag COVID Law Briefing for any questions or comments in response to this briefing. Well, everyone, it's been just over a week. since President Biden was inaugurated in quite a week. Back in November, just after the election was called, and before any vaccines were authorized, Scott and I published an editorial in The Hill outlining the five key steps that we believe, based on our work on the legal assessment project, that the new administration should take to begin to get the pandemic under control. Briefly, we called upon the new president to rescue the CDC, provide clear, consistent political leadership to states and local governments, expand access to health care, promote equity, and develop and implement a coordinated response. So one week in. Uh, Dara, how do you think the president's initiatives stack up compared to that list?
1: Well, I think, uh, as you said, one week in. So it's, it's probably too soon to judge the impact of these early actions in terms of the steps that you've Laid out, but but they certainly came out swinging. Uh, I'd say that some of the most important steps that the administration has taken right away is creating some of the structures to better coordinate the response. So the release of the national um, co- a comprehensive national response strategy, appointing a COVID coordinator at the White House, reestablishing the Health Security Directorate at the White House, um, creating the COVID Health Equity Task Force, and directing um, agencies to look at their equity uh, their equity resources. Um, those have all been important steps. Clarifying that there's going to be frequent um, briefings led by the public health experts. So I think we saw the first one today by the COVID response team. Um, and we're also happy to see the, uh, the new CDC director, Dr. wolensky's announcement on her first day that they'll be reviewing all the guidances that CDC put out of the past year to make sure it's scientifically sound.
0: What have they done that's impressed you or that's important that wasn't done?
1: Well, I think that re-engaging in global partnerships is a very important first step. Um, the administration has already uh, re-engaged in the World Health Organization. Organization And they've said that they're going to um, join the COVAX facility, facility, which is the global agreement around vaccine allocation. And I I think I counted some, something like 17 executive orders that are related to COVID and public health. And then there's others that um, like rejoining the Paris Agreement on climate change that could have a major impact on public health. Yeah,
2: I, I have to say, I, you know, I, I, I'm happy to see the rule of law come back a little bit, not just in the sense that we want to participate in the global legal system and have uh, and respect our treaty obligations, but you know, paradoxically, one of the the most popular uh, Trump administration actions in in certain parts of our of our complex community was the decision at the en- very end of the term to eliminate the the X waiver for prescribing buprenorphine as a measure to increase access to that drug uh, as a way of treating opioid addiction and preventing overdoses. Um, and it appears now that that uh, although that's a substantively good policy and a good start towards reducing barriers to um, uh, evidence-based opioid treatment. The Biden administration may be walking it back for the simple reason that it's not clear that HHS has the authority to waive that rule. And, you know, I think that just is comforting um, from the point of view of an administration that's going to try and play by the rules. On the other hand, Dara, I was kind of curious, you know, we seem to be at an, inf- about, about your view on the following, we, we're at kind of an inflection point, way, right? We have all this new energy, new leadership. We hope to get a stronger, clearer, more, more directive CDC and more consistent and credible CDC. And we, we're, we're getting a lot of executive orders. But at the same time, it seems like we're in this period of incredible COVID control fatigue. It seems really difficult, regardless of whether it's a Republican or Democrat in office at the state level or at the city level, to reimpose and maintain the kinds of controls that we're now seeing over in Europe. And it, it makes me wonder, I mean, from, the, from from your point of view, are what's the game plan here? Are we in a control game plan? Or are we just going to try and tread water as lightly as possible until we get the vaccine out. I mean, what's the most important thing that the Biden administration needs to be doing now to reduce the death toll and get this epidemic under control?
1: Well, I mean, I think the the vaccine, obviously um, having a clear strategy and and guidance, as much help as possible for states to reach the hardest to reach communities and populations to get the vaccine will be our our pathway out of this. But obviously that's going to take several months. This is an incredibly complex vaccination process, the most comprehensive, you know, the biggest that the the country has ever seen and probably the world based on the population. Unfortunately, we spent millions billions of dollars on developing this amazing vaccine. And not until December did we fund the actual vaccination process, the with an aging public health infrastructure. So we're sort of behind the eight ball on that rollout. But I, I I think that the communications, the transparency and really clear information for all different sectors, not just public health and not just the governors, but people who are considering whether to get the vaccine will be really important. Um, we also know from public health experts that because it's going to be several months until healthy adults and others are vaccinated, we need to maintain those kinds of social distancing and masking. And that so we need to um, make it as clear to possi- as possible to state and local governments about why they need to be re Emphasizing um, and strengthening those policies
2: now. You know, we've been we've been talking about the executive orders, and that's great. And when you talk about vaccine and infrastructure and capacity, it seems like we are talking about money. Can Biden do this alone, or does this real does the vaccination campaign really ultimately depend on what Congress does in the next couple of weeks with his proposals for more money?
0: I'm just going to add, and maybe you could talk about your sense of you know, is he going to be able to get
1: what he needs from I don't have a crystal ball on that one right now. Um, I wish I did. Uh, because there's the rhetoric is already sort of starting on both sides. The administration has said they would like this to be a bipartisan path forward. But we also it's a very slim Democratic majority in the Senate. And, you know, we may see a lot of pushback because Congress just passed the bill in December. And so that money is going out now. But ultimately, to achieve a lot of the things that are in the Biden, Biden's national strategy uh, will require acts of Congress, whether it's for funding or for authorities for things like, um, paid leave.
0: When you see and look at what, and as you said, they've come out singing, there's a lot of executive orders and a very robust plan, but anything strike you as missing? A lot's happened in a week, and I don't want to ask for too much in one week, but I just wonder, given the magnitude of the crisis, is there anything that, you know, from your perspective should have been there that you haven't seen yet?
1: Well, we don't know exactly what's happening behind the scenes, but we do hope that there's been a big uptick in the communications and transparency and guidance to um, state, local, tribal, and territorial partners. Did two days ago, well, we saw President Biden say that states would be receiving a three-week forecast of their vaccination, of the vaccine shipments that states would be getting. So that's an example of increase in transparency that I think states are looking for. So states, CDC, and other federal agencies need to be really proactive and clear with guidance and think outside the box over the way things have been done over the past year. So we think there really needs to be a comprehensive look at, uh, at what has happened at CDC, at FDA, and at other federal agencies that made this response such a challenge, I guess over the past year, that needs to happen internally and probably at
2: Trust for America's Health, and and I'm sure you are, you know, have your fingers on the pulse of the public health community, and probably engage in a lot of conversations across organizations. Is there is there serious interest in something like a commission to investigate what happened, or a charge to the to the National Academies?
1: Well, there's there were a lot of bills introduced last year. I think at least one bipartisan bill to um, have an external examination similar to the 9-11 commission that takes a comprehensive look. So I don't know whether that might be part of legislation that Congress considers this year. We certainly expect there to be an increase in the number of oversight hearings that we see uh, over the next year as well.
0: How much of an appetite and willingness do you think there is at this point um, with so, so much fatigue and so much divisiveness now and polarization among the states now to follow the federal guidance, you know. States have kind of been going at it on their own. And they've been going in in somewhat divergent ways over the last almost year. Can we get everybody rowing together now?
1: I think you know TIFA puts out a report every year where we look at um, public health preparedness, and I think that we underestimated the um, the politicization of a response. And there's always po- there's always politics in in anything public health. Um, we've seen that over many decades, but the, the polarization around issues like masking and um, business closures and things like that uh, certainly I think got far beyond where they, we would have liked to see. So I think the challenge for the president and and the new administration is to communicate why why certain public health um, strategies are in the best interest of the states and there's been some recent um, research out of uh, de Beaumont Foundation on ways to communicate the value of public health to diverse audiences
2: yeah I have to say that 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 all strikes me as very nice and very useful and unlikely to make much of a difference but we do have a case study now that the CDC's you know come up pretty strongly against uh, I guess this is a, a re-reviewed position saying that schools are safe to open and that is an issue that roils across the country and isn't politicized in the same way that some of the others are it's not factional um, you know there are parents in blue cities that are just as eager to have their schools open as in red cities and there are teachers in you know red cities who are just as opposed as you know as, as, as teachers in blue so have you got a view as to whether the uh, new CDC guidance is the kind of thing that we want to see in the way of of that clear messaging and and push from the government and are there other things that have to happen to um, do you think you, do you think it's an important priority to get kids back to school within all this
1: well um, I, I I think what was interesting about the CDC study that came out this week was that they looked at rural Wisconsin which you know is traditionally um, has less mask adherence but they found very little school transmission with mitigation measures in place so with masking with physical distancing with small cohorts of student groups which to me implies that it would um, you would still need some kind of um, hybrid situation where not everybody is going back at the same time. You know, I think we're seeing and we are going to see a a mental health crisis occurring with students who uh, who aren't receiving services that they would normally get by being physically in school. So there's public health benefits to students receiving the nutrition, the school counseling, um, unfortunately, the reporting of um, abuse. Those kinds of things happen in schools, let alone the education um, gap, the the achievement gap that is being um, exacerbated by children. um, um, learning from home. So, you know, I, I I hate that it's one versus the other. We need to make sure that that teachers and staff working in schools are being protected. Um, in the town I live in, they've um, vaccinated nearly every teacher. And so that has to be a priority as well. We can't, you know, especially because a lot of teachers are older adults who um, are at higher risk. So they need to find a balance. Of it, but thinking about those other health impacts on on children as well.
0: Here's one for you, Scott. You know, this is a series on uh, law and COVID-19. So how worried are you or should we be worried about the courts cabining what the Biden administration can do for the pandemic? And I'm thinking about, um, you know, one area I've been working on is immigration and immigration laws role in the pandemic. And just yesterday we had a court in Texas enjoying, it's kind of strange, right, enjoying a stay of of deportations. How much are we going to see sort of, again, now red states instead of blue states challenging what the Biden administration is trying to do in ways that address the pandemic, particularly, I think, in ways that address the equity, the need for equity in the pandemic response?
2: Well, you know, in brief, I think we're seeing a big upsurge in, in you know, irritation. I, that, that may pass. I mean, I don't know that there's an alternative model to giving executives the authority to react to emergencies. On the other hand, I think there's a longer term trend going on, um, which is the, you know, it's just been represented for a long time in public health in the application of the First Amendment to what were once sort of traditional public health measures like, you know, advertising restrictions on alcohol or warning labels, that kind of stuff. And we saw that in the Cuomo case, um, in the closure of religious institutions, that a strict scrutiny standard was applied to a public health measure. Um, And the problem with the way strict scrutiny has been applied in public health cases is that the court pretends it's being scientific and just asks for reasonable evidence but it sets an evidentiary bar that's far higher than practical, um, that, that, that can then usually be met. Um, so that, you know, I, and I think that, that that doesn't just represent a kind of abuse of strict scrutiny or maybe a scientific naivete or maybe a scientific cunning, but it also reflects this other element that we saw in COVID, which is the rise of kind of civil rights absolutism, you know, that my Second Amendment right, my First Amendment right, that's all that matters. Um, and you each actually have courts saying, essentially, you know, we organize government in order to preserve these rights, as opposed to you know, what Jacobson versus Massachusetts talked about 100 years ago, which is we organize government to protect us all and to create a healthy world for us to live in. And that is a matter of judicial philosophy, a matter of how judges think of what our country is all about and what our constitutional system is meant to be. And that is Practically speaking, is a matter of who gets appointed to the bench. I think it's going to be really important for the Biden administration going forward now to be appointing judges who have a high appreciation of solidarity and equity. Solidarity and equity; those are the two values that are going to allow us to rebuild our public health uh, infrastructure and our public health law. The idea that we're all in a war of all against all to save our own personal rights, the country be damned, um, is not a recipe for um, good public health practice.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I do think we're seeing you know, we have this juxtaposition of the country electing a president who really was elected in one sense, not only to bring us together, but to get the pandemic under control. And we have a judiciary that is, I totally agree with you, that seems to be giving less and less weight to the common good. And one of the ways I like to describe it is we're getting, we're getting strict scrutiny to even get to strict scrutiny, right? It's just becoming impossible Possible with certain claims and Justice Gorsuch's um, de minimization, right? If derision of Jacobson is a modest decision, really, I think, provides a very dangerous signal for where we're going. And so there may be a real clash of fundamental values between the administration and the courts, um, particularly so heavily constituted by the Trump administration and the Federalist Society. So that's an interesting, I guess to be to be followed. Um, need to keep our eyes on that, and I hope the administration is keeping their eyes on that. I suspect they are. We Before we end, uh, Dara, I really do want to ask you to think about, for a moment, the longer term. And, you know, it's hard while we're in the middle, and we're still in the middle of this um, crisis, and so much is happening just to sort of make it okay today. But what should the administration be doing now while it's still digging out of the hole to help Prepare us and to get us into a better place for the next pandemic public health crisis, one will surely come again. So, I wonder if you have any thoughts about that.
1: Sure. I mean, we've done obviously a lot of thinking about that at TIFA. Um, please go to our website, uh, tfa.org, tfa.org. But we think it's important to be thinking really about sustaining funding for public health. So, you know, we saw unfortunately over the past year the impact of chronic underfunding of the public health system as health departments tried to track and contain. Um, a disease when they're understaffed and they are using phone and fax machine rather than um, just even modern computers um, or Excel to to track the the disease. And it's just truly um, contributed to tragic results. So we think we need to be um, thinking about sustaining that funding over long term. So the Biden administration in the national strategy has said they want um, a surge of 100,000 public health and community health workers with the hopes that these workers could transverse Transition to the full-time public health workforce after the pandemic response, but we know that that requires sustained funding. So we've seen this in the past where emergency funding is approved by Congress, and generally that funding expires after, let's say, two to five years. So we may have a surge of um, public health workforce that's hired with that short-term funding, but then once they hit that cliff, they lose that core um, infrastructure. So we just have to get out of this boom and bust cycle. Um, And that's really, there's really not a great way to modernize the public health infrastructure without sustained um, public health investment.
0: Thank you. That's really an important point to end with. So I want to really thank Dara Lieberman from the Trust for America's Health and thank the trust. And thank you, Scott. We will be broadcasting here on Twitter every Tuesday and Thursday at noon. Just go to at PHLawWatch or search hashtag COVIDLawWatch briefing. Recordings are available on the Public Health Law Watch website, and the shows are archived by the Week in Health Law podcast at www.twihl.com. The COVID-19 Law and Brief Policy briefings are produced by Faith Kallick, Summer Brown, and Liz Foyles. We'll see you next time. Please stay safe.